1: Hey folks, Oliver here. This week, Horace and I are together in person for the first time in nearly two and a half years as we get ready for the Micromobility Europe Conference. One of the things that we've loved doing every so often is revisiting the micromobility thesis. We wanted this to be the episode you share with everyone who is asking or interested in what all the fuss is about. If you're just joining us for the first time, Horace Dedu is the creator of the term micromobility, and this podcast was where we first started talking about it back in 2018. Since then, we've done over 140 episodes, covering all manner of lightweight electric vehicles, including interviewing CEOs and founders in the space from companies like Vanmoof, Cowboy, OneWheel, Nagi, Segway, Akimoto, and more, while also talking to shared operators such as Tia, Lime, Bird, Dot, Rebel, and Beam, and way more. We've tried to focus on the intersection between the new vehicle tech, cities, and consumers, using the disruptive innovation framework developed by Clay Christensen at Harvard to ask what jobs are being solved Why these small and low-cost vehicles are interesting, and what the implications will be on wider society. Personally speaking, it's been an utter joy getting to do this over the last four years, and I really appreciate the support of all of our listeners and fans from all over the world. It really feels like we're on the cusp of something material, and the latest vehicles and businesses that are emerging signal to me that the most interesting space in transport is indeed with the smallest vehicles. I hope that you enjoy this, and please let us know what you think. And now, here's Horace. Let's go. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. Horace, we're in the same room.
2: <laughs> yeah, Oliver, was like literally face-to-face. We're both wearing black t-shirts and we look like twins. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. This is really exciting. This is the first time we've actually been in person in nearly three years at this point. So we are in Amsterdam. We're here for the Micromobility Europe conference, which will be happening tomorrow and June 2nd, which we're very excited about.
2: That's right we're literally looking at the venue from a hotel across the street and it looks and feels very much like the craneway which is interesting cuz like that has a special feel for us as a place and it is formerly uh, industrial building and maybe a, a you know factory of some some kind and, yeah. and the thing that feels great about our events is that we're connected to hardware we're connected to manufacturing we're connected to infrastructures we're connected to the real world as opposed to, you know, just software, more hardware than software at this point. But we certainly have plenty of both. And and that's what's also exciting about our events. We have a, a very eclectic mix of yeah. participants.
1: Yeah, well, we're gonna have a 1000 or so of them, which is, makes it the, the biggest uh, event that we've run to date. So look, anyway, I wanted to use this session today as to kind of go back and look at where we've come from. And I know we've done one of these before. It was called Micromobility, What It Is and Why It Matters. And we really enjoyed that. And it was actually our most popular podcast to date. I'm very keen to do a 2022 update because there's been a lot that's happened since we did our last one, which was probably about 18 months, probably two years ago. And so, yeah, what we're going to do today is just take us through what is micromobility? Why is it interesting? And this episode is intended for people who... Uh, maybe new to micromobility and, and are trying to understand why on earth would a thousand people or so go and gather in Amsterdam to talk about electric bikes and scooters. And we, we want to put it into the sort of the general context of why we think this matters in transport. Yeah. So, well,
2: uh, this is one of the struggles that's been from day one, but it's not a, it's not a bad thing to say we can't really nail the, the definition. In fact, it, it took me a while to understand this, but someone wise once said that as, you know, as soon as you define something, it ceases to have power. And it's an interesting concept. Someone else pointed from a whole different world, pointed out that if all the great sciences of the world whose names are predicated on, say, genetics or psychology or even pedagogy, which is a study of learning, if you were to take those researchers and, and, and wrestle them to the ground and force them to define the core thing that the whole science and study is predicated on, they would struggle to define it and the reason for that is that the most fundamental things are fundamentally too complex too too multifaceted to be properly defined so genes and knowledge and logic and even rationality itself are difficult concepts to really wrestled down to a definition that everybody agrees on. And that's the case with micromobility because it is actually such, a, the more you study, the more variety of meaning is uncovered. Mm. And so when I struggled in the beginning and I had to put something in the ground, we talked about weight. Since then, other people have proposed speed and then proposed energy and proposed mm. utility. And, in and so
1: of- just for context, <laughs> what we're talking about is vehicles that are lightweight, electric, and, so initially,
2: uh, and, yeah. if we had this conversation, as we did, in like was it three years ago mm. we started to define four, four years ago, four yeah. years ago, as yeah. we started to define micromobility, I put forward, I, I you know, a man proposal that it should be defined as vehicles weighing le- less than five hundred kilograms as the simplest and yet most cogent definition I could come up with. But over the years, I've become, you know, not that I was ever really committed to that definition, but it was like I'm willing to to tolerate other definitions. But then when I realized that actually maybe we shouldn't even assume that there's a single definition, Mm. and here's where where it gets a a little bit complicated as far as semantics is concerned. Why is this slippery? Why is it hard to define? Well, it's because, again, it's multiple facets. There are multiple ways of looking at it from multiple points of view. But fundamentally, what you realize is that it's more of a way of thinking or a a feeling or a thought process. Mm. So what at the heart of micromobility is to understand that we need to really define mobility as personal freedom. Mm. We've we've made that definition also as, as sort of a, a meta definition, urban freedom in particular. That was mm. our first event in Amsterdam. I put forward that, that definition. But it's also... That it's a sense of humility. It's a sense of minimalism. It's a sense of tolerance of alternatives. It's a sense of human-sized mobility, of human-sized transport. It's a sense of, as I said, humility is the best example because it says, like, we can do with less. We can Mm -hmm. do with sufficient as opposed to superlative. We can do very well indeed. In fact, we probably will derive more joy from our movement if we think small. Mm. You know, there's this ethos about it. There's the sense of, of minimalism. And once you get it, once you understand the concept, then actually you start to reverse that that perspective and ask from the point of view of micromobility, what is everything else? Mm. And then you realize that, you know, there is a mobility that isn't micromobility and that becomes your focus. And mm. you start to understand that it isn't micromobility that needs to explain itself, but rather anything but micromobility yeah and i think that's i mean so
1: again for a little bit of context when we first started this we were looking at it and saying hey a lot of electric bikes and scooters i I mean i can get the context as well which is i was i had been at uber and reached out to horace and said hey horace you've been doing all this amazing kind of analysis into cars and thinking about Mm -hmm. you know if apple was to get into the car game what would that look like and you'd been looking at production systems and all that sort of stuff and you were like no this isn't where the interesting stuff happens yeah all the interesting stuff that's actually happening is in electric bikes and scooters. And this was before Bird and Lime and mm-hmm. all the other kind of large companies that have been built in that space. But it was because you could see that there were all of the the kind of the underpinnings of what you saw in the first days, of the early days of the mobile revolution that were now being applied to vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so that is the combination of a lot of these technologies built in modular fashions being combined into vehicles. And then beyond that, it's like, okay, well, what happens now? These are almost like computers. They're starting to be built. And so I agree. We started with the, okay, it's 500 kilograms. So because we think that's an interesting design space and nobody's building cars that are less than 500 kilograms. And what can you get in this kind of Cambrian explosion mm-hmm. of combinations where you put all these technologies together and people trial all of this out. But yeah, look, I think that's just probably important context for someone who's coming to this completely new and doesn't know what micro-mobility is.
2: Right, right. Of course, we need yes. to reset the context. But I think that the... As I said, our journey through the last four years has been one of initially trying to narrow and wrestle down the definition and Mm. and then going into committee, debating that definition, having other points of view, then perhaps expanding it broader, Defining it with more segments and saying, yes, it's about electric, it's non combustive, it's not about too big or too small. There are some who would argue, you know, well, should we, you know, skateboards? Yes. I mean, you know, should we include small cars to yes. some degree? Yeah. But those two worlds are so far apart that they won't see eye to eye on anything. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, you know, it, it's Wikipedia article, by the way, you can trace its history, sort of like how my definition was put forward. And then it sort of like got thrown away. And then somebody else's definition got put. And then according to the citable sources, which would be the the SAE, the Society Mm. of Automotive Engineers in the United States, has a working committee on this very question. What is micromobility? Mm. The term was something I put forward, but then they decided to wrestle to the ground and it escaped. Mm. It ran away. It Mm. just just bolted out of the room and said, no, I'm not going to be wrestled to the ground. And that's the point where we are now, which is that definition is dependent more on a way of thinking and again it might seem like oh okay we're getting squishy and wishy-washy but it's actually a very very important human process to sort of understand that this is bigger than just the definition itself it's a way of thinking and and it's it's a way now here we here we are in amsterdam which actually is probably the spiritual heart Mm -hmm. of cycling as a as a form of, of mobility as opposed to you know sport or recreation it is very vibrant here but it isn't powered, mm. not, not as much as in other places, and nor is it shared uh, in Amsterdam. But all of these facets. So, is microelectric? Is micro shared? Is micro two wheels, three wheels, one wheel, four wheels? Mm-hmm. How many wheels exactly? Well, yes. it, it turns out that this actually forces you to be limiting in your thinking. Again, going back to what is in common is that it's a way of shaping mobility around the human. Mm -hmm. not having the human comply to some notion of regulation or, or, you know, case in point, most cars are built with four or five seats. There's absolutely zero reason why we need to carry excess capacity with us when we travel. Mm -hmm. There's just zero, zero reason. It's like saying, I'm going to travel. I'm going to bring five bags with me, even though four of them are empty. Mm. That we do every day when we get in the car. We just carry around excess capacity and then we end up actually bulking up over time to more and more yes. and then we said because i have all this capacity i need to protect myself and also speed i need to increase and then protect myself so i'm going to you know wrap everything in a steel cage and i'm going to add armor mm-hmm. and i'm going to add protection of you know using software and all these other things and you just are realizing that you're running off in the wrong wrong direction instead mm. of starting with a human being and asking what is the minimal thing you need to move mm. with within your demands and that doesn't mean you don't need a car but you probably could only should only use a car for long trips with more than one passenger with yes. some cargo involved. Yes.
1: Because I think the, the other thing as well, when we talk about, you know as you say, it's a way of thinking. There are a couple of core tenants of what we've discovered along the journey of the, over the last four years. And a couple of those are most trips are short trips. Most trips are taken in a car with only one passenger. Yes. So how do we start right-sizing the vehicle to yeah. the trips that actually people take?
2: Yeah. So in fact, the initial definition was reactive. I reacted to the notion that cars are too big and too heavy. And I said, actually, if we if we come up with this arbitrary boundary layer it's at 500 kilograms, then we exclude cars automatically. Mm. And then we free up a lot of space to think below that point. And you realize there's a lot of empty space. Mm. And then there's huge unoccupied space between the bicycle that's like 25 kilograms. And the next step up, which is five hundred, is so we'll build something in that mm, space. It's mm, wide open. Go for it. And so that led us to heavy micromobility mm, as a thought. Totally. But I want to point out that this is only one way to reduce or back into a definition is to follow the logic backwards from the car and say there's negative space. There's a car which is visible in mobility around the automobility that is very highly visible because it's measured mm. because there's tons of data because there are lots and thousands of analysts looking at it and everybody wants to know how many and how big and how heavy they are and everything else but by by then seeing that as as space and then you look at negative space around it that's how i decided to identify micro mobility as a negative space around automobility that invisible space of vehicles of form factors of modes of transport of even business models that exists outside of automobility as defined by a century of of an industry. And then here's the epiphany of the last few months, if I may, is like, okay, then if negative space is micro Mm. and let's assume that now we get it, we understand what this is, then actually I can flip it and say, actually, automobility is a negative space around micromobility. Mm. If you start to understand and grok, deeply understand what micro is, then you start to see as automobility as the anomaly. Then you start to see, whoa, wait a minute. Also, by the way, you start to see buses and you start to see trucks and you start to see, you know, we're looking at a canal. I can look at canal boats this Mm. way and say, oh, they're not micro mobility. in particular. There are these types of vehicles that go on water. There are these types of vehicles that carry heavy goods. There are these long distance aviation, long distance trains and so on and so on. So you start to see well, automobility has been so stupefying; it has been so monopolizing our attention mm. that we don't realize that that infrastructure that it shares with micro, but it shares with all these other macro objects, which has, by the way, led me to think about a new scope of call, calling it macro mobility. Mm. A macro mobility is that which isn't micro mobility. Therefore, I'm going to step up here and define mobilities based on micromobility being the center of the universe. Now, let me put it to you. Oh, come on. You guys are crazy. Well, (laughs) put it to you this way. We ended up doing the same thing with computing. Because if you were to go back in time to Mm. 1980, for example, we didn't have something called the PC. The PC came in 1981 with with the IBM PC. Mm. Before that, we had so-called home computers, maybe so, you know, if you're an engineer, you call them microcomputers because mm. they're built in a microprocessor, which Intel invented, you know, and it labeled this particular new chip, which is including all the CPU functions onto one chip. That was a microprocessor. Sure. And they went around with these hobbyist applications. It wasn't really used for business. And it wasn't used for proper computing as, as scientific, educational, or, or anything else for that matter. Mm-hmm. And so when that world was, was the world of computing was effectively big iron as they called it so so we would call that macro computing right this would this would be like big compute and mainframe which is a funny name but that was what was used for a large computer by IBM mm. and then mini computer was what digital equipment and other you know sort, sort of startups did at the day and then this personal computer now we don't go around today defining computing as you know microcomputer based or microprocessor based mm. computing we rather look at at these oddballs of these legacy systems and call them by specific names like mainframe Mm. or mini. And then we end up probably saying, oh, we have servers and server farms and things of that nature that become the cloud. Mm. So now we understand cloud computing. Well, that used to be something based on a single machine, but now it's like a huge amorphous cloud of compute that we sort of just rent by the hour Mm. or by the kilobyte or whatever so aws exists which is centralized computing that Mm. is in the cloud so but you see that we have to come up with names for these other things because in our pockets we have microcomputers. Mm. We have in our pockets what is effectively the new computer of the, of the universe called the smartphone. got mm. forgot the, about all these other nomenclatures, but the smartphone in our pocket is the thing that we understand deeply, and we don't even have to give it a name. Mm. We struggled in the beginning. What is the, what is the definition of a smartphone? I, I, need, not, I need to remind you that, that it wasn't clear at all whether mm. it was like, well, that's a feature phone has all those things that you can do with a smartphone, like take pictures and send email and, and browse the web. Mm. And then suddenly we, we're trying to figure out what? How? what is the definition, the boundary layer between a smartphone and non-smartphone yes. and a smartphone and a PDA and a smartphone and a laptop or a mini laptop or a micro laptop and all these other different sizes of laptops. And so we struggle. And then nowadays we don't bother with it anymore. It's, nobody it's,
1: really cares. Nobody because,
2: cares. Yeah, it's yeah, ubiquitous, yeah. but it is effectively the most... Common form of computation we do, and it's pocket size, and mm. it, we take it with us. We use it all our waking hours, and moving to a portable, uh, wearable now. So mm. now wearables are even more pervasive. Totally. But and, but but the reason I'm I'm saying this, like we now understand computing, what used to be centralized around what we thought of as the sort of the the mainframe, mm. but now that's weird and outstanding and odd, and we need to give it a name as opposed to like the thing we actually use, which doesn't need a name anymore. Mm. You see, uh,
0: that's the uh, paradigm. But
1: yeah, well, totally. And also the, I mean, I think it's, if, if I'm to go back to what we had originally framed this up as, and when we, when we were originally looking at micromobility, think of mainframes as services what were mainframes as being like trains the laptops and personal computers as being very much like you know we all got cars we all got computing in our homes we ended yeah. up having that capability that computation yeah
2: or you can think of it one per household yes or one per neighborhood which was yeah. the train or the tram and then we end up at one you see it keeps going and then the smartphone was one per person yes and now with wearables we have multiples of of these devices per person. So Mm -hmm. everyone's carrying three, four things that are Mm. computing oriented. And again, this is why I keep going back to this analogy of the compute world is that how it transformed from centralized, shared to individual, multiple instances per individual of power, Mm. power at the end of the day, this was, uh, it happened by the way, even before the compute, it happened with electric motors. I don't know if I ever shared this story, but it was one Steve Jobs himself cited which was that if you look at it back in history to the electric motor when it was invented, it was a huge machine that was meant to effectively replace a steam engine that, mm. that operated a factory. So you have belts attached to a big, big hunk motor, which was, again, powered either by steam or by water, like a water wheel would mm. turn this huge thing. And belts were hung on pulleys that traveled the, width, the length of a building and attached to these pulleys were individual machines that did various tasks in, let's say, in the manufacture of, of clothing and textiles. I mm. that was the first application. Mm. So the power source for a factory used to be steam. Well, water, then steam, then this electric motor that could be driven by mains power, or it could also be driven by a generator locally on site mm. that moved it. To, but it was much easier to work with electricity. And then what happened is those motors shrank. And once they shrank, they became part of the machine that each worker used. So the the lathe, power drill, all these other things became localized. So a factory went from one big electric motor to dozens of electric motors that Mm. were in each machine. Mm. And then it crossed over to consumers where the entire appliance industry grew up around, okay, there's a motor inside your washing machine. There's a motor inside your refrigerator, which by the way is a compressor at Mm. the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So it's an electric motor. Then it went and moved to this the sewing machine, which every household had to have. Then you know it the turntable for the music. The turntable once we invented the phonographs and so on. So you can see that the electric motor was a core technology by shrinking in size. Mm. It traveled from centralized business applications to localized consumer applications. And that each household, by the time Steve Jobs noted this, each household had like 15, let's say. I'm order of magnitude here. It's between 10 and 100. I don't remember exactly. But it was like some dozens of motors were in each household. Now, I challenge anybody listening to count the number of electric motors in their lives. It's not only the fact that your laptop probably has a fan. That fan is driven by electric motors. But not only your car, you know, your car is going to have half a dozen. Your, okay? your,
1: your smartphone has a little like a thing that like makes the, makes, vibration. the, the vibration. yeah. yeah probably totally.
2: each phone has a, a tiny little electric motor. But also in the household, obviously all your appliances. But in the automobile, you have dozens as mm-hmm. well. Power windows, power seats, totally. power door locks, everything like that. Also, you, you know, increasingly, you know, the steering is electric motors. Mm. If you have electric steering in your car and you, you don't realize this, but the electric motor did a huge change in the automotive industry, even before it became part of the powertrain. Mm. And what enabled this is constant improvements in the motor technologies, which included high density magnet technologies, brushless motors and all of that. And now it's propagated to the devices we ride on. But it's that. But what's the point? The point is that throughout history is to make things smaller, more ubiquitous Hmm. and core technologies that then are plug and play into more complex systems. And Hmm. these are core technologies. So the microprocessor came, changed computation, but it also changed communication. It also changed entertainment. Hmm. Now it's changing transportation. Mm. And the way it's changing it mo- most is through micro. Mm. And that's my argument. I'm pounding the table on this. Yes, The cars are going to get it, but the v- small vehicles are going to get it faster and they're going to iterate faster and they're going to figure out the problem faster. And as a result, they'll evolve faster. Just like a, an elephant versus a fruit fly. The mm. fruit fly just die- lives and dies hundred times or a thousand times before the elephant lives and dies. Yes. And that means that your evolutionary cycle is so much faster. Yeah. Viruses, by the way, live even shorter cycles. And that's why they evolve faster. And that's yeah. why they can attack us faster.
1: So to give context as well, I mean, I think this is probably a useful place to chuck in some stats, which is a car zero to, you know, like I've got, I've got an idea for a car to I'm going to produce it. And I'm in a large auto company, mm-hmm. seven years to get it up. And, and that's, actually start that's
2: it's it. shrinking, but it's only because of electric that it's shrinking right yep. before the, the advent of electric motor as a drive train based on, on internal combustion, the product cycles are even longer. But that's right. And and that's the thing about big things versus Mm. small things. Mm. Small things are not just easily adopted and more conforming to the infrastructures that exist, Mm. right? Home appliance, by the way, is just wheel wheel it in some, mm. some delivery worker comes in drops it off mm. and you find a way to plug it in if that appliance requires uh, let's say plumbing like a washing machine might sure it's a little bit slower to adopt than something that doesn't mm. and so there's this these these other things that slow things down that oh i need to have a laundry room yes you know or i need to have vent for the dryer yeah. And that slowed down versus the refrigerator, which didn't need anything but space in a kitchen, which totally. there, was, there was enough of it.
1: I guess, that, sorry, I want to give the context as well. So seven years, it was even even if it's five years to start a car, mm-hmm. you know, like scooters these days or e-bikes these days are on a yearly upgrade cycle. Even you know?
2: faster because if, yes, that's the point. So yeah. we're, we're an order of magnitude. Let's roughly wrestle it down to about a tenth as, as much time yes. to come to market to then evolve so that each each new variant takes one year or so to evolve to the next iteration. Yes. And as a result, if you look at the space around us and you look at scooters on the street, and I'm just going to pull this out because I, I see it. You had first-generation scooters looking more or less like consumer products. Mm-hmm. But now the scooters that are shared in, in use in the world are custom-made for the job. Yes. They have removable batteries. They're sturdy. They last longer. They're heavier. Not something you'd want to pull up the stairs on your way into your apartment. Totally. Again, this is what happens also in evolutionary terms is that you have branching, you have adaptability happen. Mm. So in evolutionary terms, you have, you know, small winged species. Mm. And then you have, you know, large flightless birds and well, you, all of those things totally. are part of the the same family.
1: And the parallels I can see to that is like, we started this podcast four years ago and that was kind of right at the start of like Bird and Lime and some of these other larger shared companies starting their journey of putting scooters out on the street. And it was a crazy period and uh, all that sort of stuff. Whereas, and as you say, they started out with consumer hardware. Nowadays, we have custom hardware built with full IOT stack. Everything's available for them. You can literally buy all of the components that you would need to put together a shared service mm-hmm. off other, like put it together because there are businesses that are spun up to be able to make that happen. In that four years, there hasn't been a change. I mean, I think about it and go, the Zip car first came into, mm. first, first came into fruition in the mid 2000s. And the car sharing systems that we might see in, in a lot of cities where you can be able to go up and access mm-hmm. a car they still don't have custom vehicles. Mm-hmm. They still just have, oh, you know, yeah, like and, the and, the and, the old stuff that's been around. It's like the, the scraps from the car makers they I mean, give for uh, this, you know.
2: Let's take Tesla. Tesla is one of the most dynamic car companies in the world. It's the envy of the car industry because of its speed. Mm-hmm. But what was six, what was four, four years ago with, it was just starting to, I think, do the Model 3. Yes. And now the Model 3 is in production the Model Y is, is ramping now and it's, it's, Arguably it's just a variant of the Model Three. And you know, Model Three was a variant of, you know, architecturally speaking, not that, you know, big of a leap from mm-hmm. the Model S and the Model X. But in general, the envy of the car industry to us feels super slow. Mm. And they're still trying to work out how to get to the point of maximum distribution and maximum production for the Model 3, which means building new plants, which take two years to develop. And that's lightning fast for mm. the auto industry. And yes, they've prospered in the process, but it's by no means been a change that has dramatically changed the structure of the industry. I mean, from a market value point of view, perhaps, but volumes of units and all that market share stuff is—it's not—it hasn't been the giant leap that, that the industry needs to mm. move forward quickly. Mm. Right? We need—we have urgent clocks. Clock is running on carbon. Mm. So I think this is one of the reasons I'm so excited about micromobility is that. By being small, it's able to evolve more rapidly, it's able to be adopted more quickly, and therefore get the feedback loop of people mm. using it and feeding information. Because why did Scooter change? Well, the economics are are more evident, and everybody's like, okay, we need to make it more robust and we mm. need it to have it more range, and we we our operational cost goes down with swaps. And by the way, this does not mean that everybody prospers equally. It's Mm. obviously a a time of great experimentation. But that's the thing. Let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, 900 of them probably die as well. And Mm. then another 900 take their place. So you have a constant process of reinvention happening, which drives the world forward. Mm. Climate
1: and I think, I mean, I think this is important context as well, because I think when we first launched this burden line was taking off and they became billion dollar companies and they raised nearly a billion dollars and we're going out and, and everybody was very excited about the unit economics of, hey, you can pay these scooters or you can buy these scooters, put them on the street and they, they pay themselves off in a month or two months or something like this. The unit economics are insane. And yet what we've seen has been over time, those shared businesses, the ones that really expanded very quickly in the beginning have really struggled because they overshot. The cities themselves were mm-hmm. saying, hey, there's actually like there's an absorption problem that we have here, which is you are trying to put scooters onto our streets, but we don't have the infrastructure mm-hmm. for it. And so what I want to take the conversation to is how do we think about this as it impacts cities? Because I think the one the one thing that's been super interesting to me about micromobility right from the get-go has been... This feels to me like a really important technology for how cities are going to work. And maybe it's useful for you to explain why cities are important and and, and like right. what's happening historically with cities.
2: Cities, as I said in Berlin, micromobility event is the primary customer segmentation logic. So unlike direct-to-consumer businesses where you, you try to understand the psychology of individual users and what they might choose to buy when. That is the, the segmentation and the sequencing problem. In other words, who do I sell to and when do I target particular groups? That is a key decision-making process for management. Now, in the case of micromobility, because this depends so much on geography or, mm. or, or the physical nature of transport, you have to go through the fabric of society. And the society we're particularly suited for is the urban And that means cities are part of the fabric we need to work with. And therefore, although you still need consumer segmentation, Mm. you also need city segmentation. Mm. So city becomes the thing you focus on. Now, it may seem like, well, there's not that many. Well, there's over 8,000 cities in the world with more than half a million people in in population. Mm. And that means that already you're dealing with thousands. Now, if you include anything above 50,000 people in, in a locale then you're dealing with close to 50,000 cities or towns. Mm. So now we're talking with a fairly large, substantial data set. And from that, then you need to, again, to segment that. Mm. So starting with cities, focusing on them. Now, some will be early, some will be late. Mm. Some will be uh, early adopters, some will be laggards. Mm. And
1: Hold up. So the the reason I also want to bring up cities as well is that, most of the world is that it lives in now in an urban setting yes. and they will continue to live more yes. so and more So urbanization
2: more. becomes another part of the sort of the corollary of micro-mobilities that if you want to know the future of mobility, you need to study cities. Mm-hmm. And when you do, you start to look at the global urbanization phenomenon. And, you know, I pointed out before, this is a multi-millennial process. Mm-hmm. Thousands of years of cities have, of history exists mm. and what cities are fundamentally resilient, they're anti-fragile. They seem to survive all kinds of shocks to the system mm. as we just passed through COVID and, and everybody you know foretold the the, the demise of cities, but they bounce right back and, and mm. again, come out stronger than ever. Mm. And so we passed the point of 50% of people in the world living in cities only about, oh, sorry, I forgot exactly, but yeah. 2015 yeah. and 2020, yeah. there was a moment in time, the way I put it, we became an urban species when yes. the majority of people on the planet are living in what effectively is a is a you know a city also de- definition varies but but the, the idea of a the conurbation mm. and and that's a pivotal moment in history mm. we almost are coincident with that moment the birth of micromobility and the birth of the urban species mm. are coincident interestingly mm. but it's a pattern which you can trace back and observe historically. And it has been, you know, not monotonically increasing, but it's certainly been in the long term very much on an increase. We've had ups and downs, but basically easy to, to squint and see an upward pattern. And, and then,
1: yet the way that we've built most of our cities has been around a, yes, like yes, kind yes. Of a relatively outdated yeah. transport model. Before
2: I go into that, let yeah, me just yeah, point sure. out that although we're at 50 now, the pattern is that we're going to get to 66 or two thirds by 2050. And mm. we, we're moving up to 70% easily before the century is over. Mm. Now that may be beyond our, uh, some of our lives, but basically this is an inexorable rise. Mm. And when you think about 66% of people in the world, a population which itself is rising, mm. we're dealing with billions and billions and billions of people. There's no no kind of like grasp of limit here You can you can imagine, right? And yet, as you point out, the city has not been developed in terms of its infrastructure mm. to serve people moving individually, mm. economically, in the shorter distances necessary, having inherited only the invention of the automobile as its primary mobility construct. Mm. Now, mind you, plenty of cities exist. Mm that were built around pedestrianism or even subways, which are really grafted onto pedestrian cities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they came before the car. Mm-hmm. And those cities are our legacy cities, but they're a tiny minority. Mm. And certainly the populations that are currently flooding the cities are coming post-automobility.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so we kind of are in a strange juxtaposition here between the this inexorable rise of urban society with an obsolete form of mobility that is only one century old. Mm -hmm. So we have a a millennial's old process continuing for centuries after with a blip in the middle of it called the automobile Mm. that somehow for a while was beneficial, but began to reverse into inefficiency pollution, Mm. grotesque misuse of space and atmosphere, which Mm. which ended up destroying a lot of the value. I wrote about this. Do come to read my piece on Paris and how Paris itself, a pre-automobile city, was starting to lose its charms because of the automobile. Mm. And now that's being reversed. And many city governments are coming to the conclusion that actually, oh, wow, the car isn't the best option.
1: Yes. So you have to focus... Interestingly on... enough as well, that's where people say they want to live. There's some great data out there of more than half of them want to live in something that's quite oh, everybody quite loves it yeah. and wants to live in a walkable neighborhood. And yet we have designed all of our cities around the car. And, uh, and
2: I mean, people who travel who are fortunate enough to come to, say, Amsterdam or Europe to some of the European cities that have embraced micromobility are shocked by how livable they appear. Mm. And then many people say, oh, I loved it when I was at college. And then, so if you're an American, you mm. say, well, college was so much fun. Why? Because you lived on the campus that was walkable. Mm. I love the, the, the experience that I might have at a mall or in a park. Why? Because those are walkable. Mm. And you realize that these these artificial environments we created specifically as community space become the almost utopian view. Mm. And then they're, they they're kind of like, oh, yeah, but that can't scale. You know, they can well totally. come to Europe and you'll see it scaling. I'm confident that, you know, again, like infrastructures that came around computing and communications, they scaled very quickly. Mm. Again, those are massive fights. Everybody argued, oh, we're not going to get computer networking going for a long, long time. And it's never been consumerized. Mm. That was a fight from like 1995 till about 2005. So it was like, you know, a 10 year fight that everybody said, well, how are we going to get bandwidth to the, to the home? Well, we figured it out. In mm. fact, we have it in our pockets. Similar question about, you know, how to get data and and things over cellular, which again was a 10-year fight and, and it got sorted with some billions of dollars involved, but profitable billions. And so don't worry about the infrastructure. It, it isn't, by the way, this is another struggle I have trying to explain to people chicken and egg issue, right? Mm is the infrastructure needs to be in place before we get people to use the vehicles? Or do the vehicles need to be in place before city planners agree to build the infrastructure? Mm. It seems like a chicken chicken and egg problem. But in reality, again, this historically has been proven that the devices lead, the infrastructure comes yeah. after.
1: There's someone who pointed out that anytime you see a bike or a scooter on the footpath, it's, it's signaling unmet demand for better infrastructure.
2: Better, yes, exactly. In <laughs> fact, when you are here and you observe you take a moment that, not to be dazzled by, by Amsterdam, but, but you start to look at the infrastructure, you see the details. The, the detail I was just noticing today in my walk that there's a different color pavement. Mm. So the the cycling paths, which are ubiquitous and multi-lanes. So there's bi-directional traffic on bike paths and crosswalks, which are bike oriented. And there's a parallel pedestrian infrastructure and there's a parallel automotive infrastructure. Mm. But the thing is that the way you can instantly distinguish between them if you're walking is that the, the walk path is gray and often tiled, and whereas the bike path is red, And often smooth asphalt. Mm. And then the car has obviously its own kind of width, but it's also a different color. Mm. So the the idea is that you shouldn't even think about is this a bicycle path? You should feel that it is, right? And so it's details like this matter and development of logic of city transport around micro has, has, you know, best practices here are at hand. And everybody can learn. There's no one there saying, oh, you can't copy us. Please copy us Mm. is the argument, right? Mm. There's nothing here that is proprietary secrecy or, you know, sorry, signed an NDA before looking at Amsterdam. Mm. You can't see Amsterdam unless you sign. No, no, no. There's no NDAs here, folks. Mm. You can come and see exactly how to do it. And, you know, they've been doing it for decades. Mm. And this is one of the things that, like, I do wish we could bring more people and just show them, you know, grab them by the scruff of the neck and show them. That is it's possible. So the proof, existence proof exists, mm. right? In other words, you can show that it can be done, it's mm. been shown. So yeah, cities are a critical way to think about this. And I think of it as a lens. It, it helps you understand the potential, the scale, the speed. You understand also the audience, the number of people, the fact that urban people, by the way, tend to make more money. Mm-hmm. The fact that urban journeys tend to end in the transaction. Mm the fact that urban journeys are typically more valuable than non-urban journeys. Yeah. I
1: mean, I also loved as well, your original framing where you talked about how short trips, so not all trips are the same in terms of how valuable they are. The kind of easiest way to think about this is oftentimes, especially if you're flying anywhere in the OECD, you will spend a, a kind of a decent amount on the taxi to the airport and then Compared to necessarily the flight, mm. so you might do, you know, your taxi might cost you for a twenty-mile trip or a twenty-kilometer trip. It will cost you fifty dollars, mm. and then you hop on a plane and you take a fifty-dollar flight. I know, <laughs> but it if, takes you a couple of thousand kilometers. Yeah, if, you know, if
2: both of your des- source and destination trips are fifty to get to the airport and from it. You're spending a hundred on on auto travel, and yep. then in the middle a huge flight that only costs you a couple of hundred. And that keeps on
1: going even further, which is like you're in New York, for example, in a highly congested area and you want to go one kilometer, well, that's going to be a $15. But uh, let me me just
2: quickly get in the weeds on this. Because there's one pet peeve I have, which is that a lot of people then divide mobility questions by, for example, I could tell you about this micromobility as being valuable, but then they'll divide it by miles and then say, well, more fatalities could be the same thing. They'll say, well, look, you know, look at the fact that if you divide by the distance of travel,
0: mm. costs
2: are very high in a number of ways, but revenue is very high also on a number of ways. Mm. So in other words, in the mind of the buyer, and this is kind of a jobs to be done argument, in the mind of the buyer taking a hundred mile trip isn't that, I mean, you, you feel like, okay, yeah, it's going to cost me so much in fuel, cost so much in time and so on. But at the end of the day, you, you might not be tolerant to spend a great deal of money proportionally for hundred miles than you do for that one mile. Mm. That one mile is so valuable, mm. or let's say short urban trip is so valuable that you're much less sensitive and you're perfectly fine spending three to $5 for that journey. And you would never spend 3 to $5 per kilometer for mile, sorry, on a long journey.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: you got to be careful about the units of measure and decide, like I said, decide on cities, but also decide not on miles as a market for miles. Mm-hmm. This is why we say the transition to a market for smiles is the outcome of the trip that is more important than the nickel and dime question of what it costs you per kilometer. Mm-hmm. People are insensitive to distance. They're very sensitive to a journey mm. that the journey is the thing I hire to get the thing I need done. Mm. So if my journey is one kilometer or 100 kilometers at the end, I'm trying to meet a person, mm-hmm. do a thing shop, buy, or do whatever I'm doing, okay? And I'm hiring this journey to help me get it done. And in the mind, one doesn't calculate, at least not in a linear way, that the 100-mile trip is 100 times more valuable than a one-mile trip. Mm. And or, or that I should spend 100 times less on the one mile than I do. In fact, you might spend more on the short trip than you do on the long trip. Overall. I think oftentimes the people do. Yeah. In and fact, that-, that that's the non-linear nature of any transportation research you do. When you start to look at the data, you realize the skew, and this is the famous log normal distribution. It's like the skew towards the short. Everything is skewed toward the short. Money, value, perception, emotion, hormones, everything is skewed far close to zero, okay? Long distances, we think of them as powerful and it shrinks the world and all that good stuff, Mm. but we don't like to pay proportionally for them. We want that long journey to cost fractionally more than a short journey, Mm. and certainly not in proportion to its length. That is such a fundamental insight. And when you start to think about why micromobilities, it's like, it's a trick, it's an illusion, in the minds and psychologies of all people, where we value the short proportionally more than we value the long. Mm-hmm. And this is why all the energies, and this is misallocation, a gross misallocation of capital, all the energies of transport providers are focused on the long. Mm. We focus on the long because we need to have long distance range in our vehicles, and that's classic for electric cars, mm-hmm. but also that we need to go fast. Why do we need to go fast? Why does a car need to be fast at all? Mm. Why to cover the long distances quickly? Mm. But long distances are rare and not valuable to us proportionally. Mm. Otherwise, we'd be spending thousands, you know, for long trips. What we effectively is we're buying the long trips. But we're actually I should say we're being sold the long trips but we're buying short trips. Mm. And so what the car maker does is sells you one thing by you buying another. Mm. You know, this is the dichotomy, right? Yeah. This is the Well it's au- also
1: the optionality as well, right? Which is that you buy the car for the Six Sigma event in which you need to take, you know, four children and a dog and surfboard and all that sort of stuff. So you buy the SUV because you're gonna do this one trip maybe two or three times a year where you have to drive a long distance. But actually how you end up consuming that vehicle. Mm. Is you know lots of little one kilometer trips down to the shop. that are frustrating.
2: This has been how it's flipped to me by a critic of micromobility who, who said, "Well, the way the logic of automobility is that you buy it for the long trips, would you get the short for free."
0: Mm. I'm inverting
2: that. Mm. You buy the short and you get the long for free, and and it's just upside down. Mm. And there's I don't think there's a fundamental reason why that cannot be inverted to being much more the other way. It's like I don't need to buy fifteen. Bags to carry on every trip with me, I'll buy them one. And if I need to carry a bunch of stuff, you know, I'll rent the case, I'll rent the capacity mm. on the plane to transport things or mm. our ship FedEx. All those things are something we are perfectly comfortable living with in our physical, you know, in the goods world. Mm. But for our personal transport, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you need to have this huge vehicle, mm. even though I only go short distances alone. Yes. So this is the paradigm shift I'm trying to see. And I I just see the opportunity of writing the world Mm. from an upside down position to a right side up position. Mm. And as it transitions, there's just going to be like enormous wealth and power transitions happening.
1: Totally. And so I want to actually get onto that, which is the business opportunity, which is in some ways, I think the part that you were very good at spotting early on. And certainly we've seen lots of businesses that have been built on this. Some of them have gone really well. And I can kind of point to some of the, you know, in the space who have done quite well. And then there's been a large graveyard of companies that have really experimented in the space and they had a product that maybe headed it off and then they got stuck or whatever. But in your view, why do you think this is where the next generational companies in mobility will be built?
2: So first of all, a personal note you gave me some credit, but I don't deserve it that I'm able to foresee what I foresee as an industry, but I don't foresee individual company success that I find it to be impossible I think most of the successes which do happen are a matter of luck. You don't get to win unless you play. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I got lucky, but you got to play. It. You got to step up to be in the game to begin with. So certainly, there's a need to show up. But yes, it's very hard to pick winners because in every industry, and one thing I, I would immediately cite in the auto industry, we sort of see that there are four or five major big players. There's not Tesla as an entrant now, but but basically, when you look at the history in the early auto industry, which was born around 1880s to 1890s with the invention of the automobile but then the production system to make it scale was in 1914 which was Henry Ford so you know first there was these decades in which nobody knew what the right model was in that time frame over 3000 car companies were born mm. and only 3 or 4 survived or maybe 10 if you look at it globally so there is always in the beginning of an industry a thousand flowers bloom, but again, most 990 die and then 10 carry on. Same thing with the dot-com era, same thing with the PC era. Mm. And one could go back and study industrial development and see the same thing. So Mm. I do see that. Now, again, the challenge is picking winners out of a thousand. And that's natural. I think it's natural that nature itself and species and and biologically speaking, you will always have this kind of gross over seeding of everything. So only one out of X, babies live most species i mean humans have managed to work that down to a very low number but but infant mortality is very common mm. very common in the world and so i don't want to give false hope that hey if i'm in the game i'm going to win mm. no you're in the game and you have a chance of winning if you're not in the game you have no chance of winning mm. but the thing is first of all be in the game secondly be flexible so that hey i can take one two three hits and still go and as long as you have faith in the outcome overall you might end up being one of the Amazons, Facebooks or Apple or Google, because all of these industries you know, early on, there were plenty of PC makers and we only ended up with a few, right? If you look at all the big five, the five biggest companies in the world happen to be tech companies mm. and they're all basically the survivors out of a thousand in their own species that mm. died. And by the way, the reason for that is that it's not enough to succeed to have the vision and clear understanding of where we're going as I do, mm. but rather to execute on a thousand other things. Mm. Again, I'm using this thousand magical number, but it's something like in that order. So what do you have to do? You have to hire a right you have to time things right you have to not run out of cash you have to withstand the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune you have to deal with you know macro environment now again to the point of micro mobility in the last 4 years is that we've had to deal with covid we're now dealing with potential recessionary cycle due to overinvestment as a consequence of the covid era where we're even having a geopolitical crisis with an invasion of you know major power nuclear power invading a neighbor mm. okay who the hell would have thought of this stuff even like none of this was predictable. Mm. None of this was even weeks before it happened predictable. Mm. The truth is, and this is something we're celebrating here in Amsterdam, is that micromobility came out of all of these shocks as an industry stronger than ever. Mm. And why? Again, because it's anti-fragile, because mm. it is gets strength through adversity. It's also because there are many players and whoever falls, someone is there to take their place. Mm. The other
1: thing as well is that if we go back to the original framework that you picked up from Clayton Christensen and and jobs, you know, it's it's the idea of jobs to be done. The reality is that the jobs to be done, once someone kind of discovers an e-bike or a small electric vehicle that is appropriately sized for being able to solve Mm -hmm. the job that they have to do of being able to get around, oftentimes they say, well, that is the best option. It's not as good on all these other variables, which is it's not a car and I can't take it on the motorway and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of expensive, but like, but... It's incredibly convenient and it works exactly, you know, it does the job. It's compelling. And yes, that's why
2: the reason the industry ended up surviving these shocks is because it is actually solving a job. Mm. And the way, by the way, the reason cities survive infinite shocks as they have throughout millennia, which is like invasion, plagues, pestilence, all these things is because there's a job the city is hired Mm. to do, which is bringing people together to collaborate on stuff Mm. and become stronger due to comparative advantage. Mm. It's just like, of course, if you blow up the city, raise it to the ground, another one will have to take its place, mm-hmm. right? In the case of mobility, the fact that short trips are highly in demand, the fact that short trips are extremely valuable, and that the new tools and to, to deliver on these are extremely compelling, well, then they're going to come back for more. And by the way, speaking again about the thousand to one ratios, but like, in fact, probably only one in a thousand people in the world have actually sampled... Micromobility mm. in the way we see it, right, which is you know electrified and communicative and so on. And so what that means is that with the satisfaction mm. people are observing on micromobility, the idea that everybody tries it gets a big smile on their face. Mm. The idea that everybody tries it comes back to it. Okay, these are things you take to the bank. Mm. Satisfaction, you put it, you know, write it down on the deposit slip and slip it over to the teller. Please put this in the bank satisfaction. Mm. I got it. Mm. And so if you want in 1,000 people, then you're just waiting on 999 to come along and also discover it. Mm. Some will be early, some will be late, and we got to figure that out. But that's what gives you strength, mm. is that it is a solution to a job that everybody has, or at least if not everybody, then eventually everybody, because they will learn about this job and they will want to have it done. And so this process of conversion, we call this the S-curve, adoption curve, and so mm. on. This is why I've studied 140 diffusions in my life in terms of technologies that got adopted. And they're all universally valuable today, meaning anything from electricity to light bulbs to television to you recorded media, all these things. You know, in the beginning, you know, everybody struggles and like, who really needs this? Mm. But then you realize that everybody wants it and will pay for it. And then everybody does get it. Now, there are some things which are not ubiquitous mm. and you ha- got to be careful in ahead of time. Like, will everybody need a drone? You could argue, you know, drones are cool, mm. totally. And there are some people absolutely live with drones, but it's not probably something that every single person need to own. Mm. Okay. At the same time, you could say, you know, game consoles, which have been, again, a hugely addictive hit, mm. but again, probably penetration will be closer to 40% globally. Mm. Okay. But the smartphone, you know, when I would take electricity,
1: a gla- electricity water, you, you glance strategies. at these
2: things <laughs> They say, yeah, damn it, everybody could use a refrigerator. In the beginning, mm-hmm. it may seem really tough to believe, but mm-hmm. everybody did end up. So for me, micromobility is one of those things that I think can go to 100% or mm-hmm. equivalent to 80, let's say 80%. There are some people who are whatever, for whatever reason, can't move. There are still people who don't have cell phones because you know they're either super, super poor or in jail or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Or too young or too old. You know, yeah. There's extremes in all of these. But the fact is that, you know that is one of the things so you, so what are your foundations of faith number one that it, this is a ubiquitous thing and urbanization is driving it short mm. distances are absolutely valuable that it's actually easy to build because you're building on off-the-shelf components mm. meaning you know things that people have spent billions inventing before like microprocessors cellular networks electric motors lithium-ion batteries satellites up in space to give you GPS. Mm. All that stuff was built with enormous enormous wealth, enormous effort, mm. decades of work, mm. right? But now it's commodity. Mm. And that means you can obtain for cheap, you can assemble together into a solution that's fantastic, okay? Satisfaction is the other thing. Everybody who tries it loves it. Okay, mm. these are the foundations of faith mm. in the industry which is the ammunition you need mm. to carry on, mm. even though
1: you'll fall on your face. Yes, and there will be companies that will fail it, and it will fail. Be, Yeah, and there will be others who come I along failed. and say, "Hey, we
2: can, we can." I don't know if people remember this, but I start. You know, I was a co-founder, one of many, and I should give credit to everyone involved. But certainly, we you know we started down this path a bit too early with Bond Mobility to try to launch high-speed e-bike sharing in mm. Europe, and we thought we had all the things sorted. But uh, what actually ended up causing failure was not even our fault, but it was the macro environment related to COVID and the fact that the people who were putting money in got cold feet. It's like you did everything right, but then you're at the mercy of something you have no control over. Mm. And But that doesn't mean I give up. And certainly the idea of high-speed bike sharing mm. is absolutely thriving. And we have, as I'm here in Amsterdam, we have... Swapfiets? Swapfiets, yes, yes. Which was a, a vision we had as well, which mm. would be subscription-based bikes. Yep. But, you know... So subscription-based e-bikes is phenomenal, right? Mm. And delivery, by the way, yeah. took off soon after I we... I we, mean, one we, of the
1: biggest we, companies in the space is Zumo, who who do like renting bikes to the folks who are doing the food delivery, on-demand food delivery. Yeah, well,
2: you know, they're big, the service companies are, you know, some of them got taken out at billions, mm. okay? Like Volt, W-O-L-T, which is a European company, actually Finnish company, mm. that does delivery, and they depend on e-bikes as the core yeah. technology. So, yes... I was right about e-bikes. Yes, I was right about micro-mobility. Yes, I was right about delivery and other things and subscriptions. But that doesn't mean you end up with a successful, mm. you know, ultimately business. Mm. But we keep going through micro-mobility industries which yes. is doing well
1: too. Cool. So there are two things I want to cover off before we finish up. So one is there is the question of climate and I think- Oh, is, is that all? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well,
1: no, I just think it's one of these things that you, we, you and I have covered this quite a bit. And I, and I think we can talk to it very at a, at a top level. But I think one of the things that if we look around from a macro perspective, everybody can kind of see. anybody who reads the science will see, okay, yeah, look, we're not really going in the right direction for climate. What we need to be doing, especially if we're looking at transport, is getting ourselves to radically decarbonize our transport sector. Mm -hmm. You've done some great analysis on this Mm -hmm. by looking at it and saying, look, if we, even if we were to like really ramp up EVs from the get go for like right from today and go absolutely, you know, health leather, get as many of these things sold as possible. One, we're going to have massive infrastructure problems, and that's that's a whole other aside. But, that's, but the second is that even if we get there by 2035, we've got a real challenge. So we, yeah, what we yeah. really need is actually additional vehicles that are going to come into the transport sector that radically reduce the emissions well below what
2: standard yeah, yeah, yeah. EVs do. One thing, if you can go back and, and, and listen to the podcast I did on, on the MOT or the modicum of transport, which is another mm. metric of efficiency and measurement of what do you get for your energy consumption, and you realize that mobility is an order of magnitude or two mm. below what the car is. The one order if you're dealing with electric and two orders if you're dealing with combustion. So we're dealing with either 10 times or 100 times more efficiency. Again, when we started, we didn't have a climate agenda. We mm. started with an agenda for helping people do more things in less time, and so about efficiency in terms of time and cost. You know, we call that market for miles, market for smiles. Now it's market for carbon time, and mm. so again, coincidentally, this is the magic of, of micro. No matter what crisis you dish out, micromobility tends to thrive with that adversity. So it thrived under the adversity of COVID. It thrives under the adversity of let's tighten our belts and deal with a inflationary or growth crisis. Boom, suddenly micro steps up and says, here I am, I'm ready to to work and it thrives. And now with climate, which I think is a multi-decade process of decarbonization, suddenly it looks really good. Mm. And most people actually at the highest levels who should know better, are uneven aware of what micro presents as a solution, right? Mm. And we're starting to see an, an inkling of that Yes, as it percolates. You know, it percolates from what I call the smart people, which are doing it, to the not-so-smart people who are actually in charge. Mm. And they're, you know, the p- policymakers, and they, they all want us to do draconian things, to reduce the number of trips we take, to not fly, for example, to not have these short journeys by airplane, which, by the way, are extremely wasteful mm. versus less waste longer term. Even reducing all of our aviation to zero would only take out 2.5%. Exactly. And personal transport, the greatest villain that exists in transportation, isn't trucks, isn't buses, isn't rail, isn't airplanes. It's personal cars mm. and personal cars in particular, which are a combustion engine. And then people say, ah, we have an answer for that. Make, make them all electric. Well, first of all, Because they're cars, because they're too big, electrifying them is extremely costly in terms of raw materials and energy to produce, number one. And number two, you're still probably wasting 10x the energy needed to move around all that weight and battery. And by the way, great guys like Tony Fidel are pointing this out now and tweeting about it, saying the big electric car doesn't solve emissions from tires, which actually is the greatest source of microplastics in the world that's actually polluting our oceans, Two, it's not addressing brake dust, which is also one of the greatest microparticles out there. Although it does address braking to some extent, Mm. not completely eliminating it. Obviously, there is some regen braking and so on that can happen. But the bulk of the thing that big EVs don't solve is the fact that it's still thousands of pounds or kilos of unnecessary weight. And most of that energy goes to moving the stuff other than you. Mm. Okay. You're 10% 10% of the payload, or if in case of deliveries, 1% of the payload, the payload is 1% of the weight of the vehicle. Mm. Again, you carrying a huge amount of armor, a huge amount of energy storage, only for distances which are short and unless you know you have all this, it's just wasteful. And then you have to park the thing 96% of the time that it exists, it st- stays parked, consuming space, which is in a city, extremely, extremely expensive. Mm. If you were to price parking, it's about $120,000. I saw this figure somewhere, $120,000 per parking spot worldwide. Mm. That is a, a cost that is effectively is eaten by societies not paid for by anyone but us. That has to do with the laws that require it and so on and so on. So if you could reflect and take the lenses of micromobility and put these on your eyes as some kind of eyeglasses, Mm. you would see the world so differently and realize, wow, we can mitigate the climate problem to a great extent if we transition as many trips as possible. I'm not Mm. saying get rid of cars, but transition, we will eventually, but that's a decades long process. But Mm. in the meantime, the more you transition trips, the more you're going to impact the climate. And it doesn't mean creating, let's say, an austerity society. We're not asking you to stay home. We're we're asking you to get out there. Mm. Just do it on a reasonable vehicle. In fact, if you had that option, you'll find yourself traveling more Mm. and yet still consuming less.
1: I think that's the one thing that I do really like about micro, especially when we talk about climate, is the... It's an aspirational version of the world that isn't a, hey, we want to take a whole bunch of crap away from you. Yeah. It's a, we want to give you the joy of a small electric vehicle as a way to get around. And as it turns out, well, you probably wind up using it slightly more, but the overall impact, I mean, one e-bike takes, you know, has the same emissions as, you know, like one, it's one one hundredth
2: that of an ever standard internal combustion yes. car.
1: So you can just use it in order, or magnitude more, and it still doesn't matter. It's not it's even like not, touching and, the and, side, and, you know. And
2: it's like, again, like if, if computing was priced the way mainframes would be doing, we would not be doing any of it, mm. right? The fact that it's possible to compute that means we spend four or five hours a day using our smartphones, mm. right? And quote unquote computing, even in the PC era when, when you know you could use word processing and spreadsheets and PowerPoint, we're not doing that with our phones. But as a result, we actually spend more time in our front of our screens that we did when the computer was on the desk. So in that sense, again, we're not proposing, unlike a lot of the climate solutions or climate advocacy out there is about austerity, is about cutting back, is about denial of potential. You know, how many points of GDP loss can we take? You know, that Mm. kind of thinking. Mm. No, in fact, if micro is implemented, we'll actually see GDPs rise. Mm. We'll see... And and will do so with less impact. The two tend to be related, right? The more GDP, the more impact in Mm. climate. Now, this would allow GDP to decouple from climate. Mm. And it's been it's sort of decoupling with efficiency gains overall. So like the U.S., even though in Western countries have been increasing GDP, their, their emissions have been flat. Most emissions, by the way, have risen because of new countries like China and India mm. becoming more prosperous. But the point of this would be like, OK, we can bend the curve on emissions and still maintain the upward curve on productivity and therefore prosperity. Because we're doing things so much more efficiently, right? Mm. In many ways, efficiency is GDP growth. By the way, you know, the the gains have been like insulating your home, having more efficient cars in general, industry having more efficiency. All those allow the CO2 to stay flat while output increases. But with micro, we can see that carry forward. And Mm. so it's an optimistic idea. It's Mm. not denial, but it's an expansion opportunity we're leading here. Yeah. So that's one other reason to be optimistic and have faith. Mm. So there's one final thing that I want
1: to finish up with, which is we started doing this in 2018. You know, we've had a number of theses around how this space might develop. What have we got wrong? And what are the things that you are still expecting to see to happen? Well,
2: I'll speak for myself where I made mm. mistakes. I think one of the things I early on said, which I've been moderating my thinking on is Shared versus owned. Yes, Shared was very much to me, the way I phrased it was that the best camera is the one you have with you. This is Mm. an old adage from the phone industry, which meant that crappy little camera in your phone would be most popular Mm. because it's the one with you. And that wonderful DSLR you have at home takes great pictures, ends up being unused because it's too bulky to take with you. So my thought about the micromobility was because the bike's and scooters that are out there on the street are where you want to be and will be easy to obtain and to use, that that would very be much more like 80-20 rules. So 80% of rides would be on share, 20% would be on owned. Mm. But what's happened is partly because of COVID, we ended up with a boom in owned, even on emerging form factors like scooters and e-bikes. So a lot of companies that started in shared started to pivot away Mm. into at least doing both, but then now we may see a pivot back. And so it's oscillating a little bit, but it's certainly not 80-20 and it's certainly not as ubiquitous as this kind of camera rules. And in my own personal usage, I'd say it's the other way around. 80% is owned usage Mm. right now. For me, and 20% is shared usage but okay, so that's one thing. I yeah. think,
1: you know, I wonder also when you were talking earlier about how computers were used, I had an image in my mind that shared micro mobility as many ways like the internet cafe mm-hmm. in the early days, which is I didn't have a computer that was good enough to play some computer games. So I'd go into the internet cafe because they had the good quality hardware. Mm-hmm. But over time, I could get that stuff for myself yeah. at home and it was cheap and it, it was, you if, know.
2: Yeah, that's, so the reason that's driving this is that I guess people are loving the optionality, even though you get lower utilization on mm. their own device, are loving the optionality of having it available, at least in their home and maybe even having more than one. The other thing I think I can claim I made a mistake on was, remember Dead Use Law or something yes. to that? Yeah, effect, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is <laughs> that, I forget exactly even how big of the rise was going to be every year, but it was an exponential rise in ridership. And this was measured in terms of rides that Bird and Lime were publishing. Mm-hmm. And I compared that rise with car shared oh, ride sharing from, R- from Uber uh, and Lyft. Yeah, yeah. ride sharing, sorry. So Uber and Lyft on the same graph with Lyme and Bird mm. looked like Lime and Bird were just gonna be on an exponentially higher scale, meaning that and I put this out there and I again I was just looking at the data. Mm. But then Bernard Lime stopped publishing the data. And mm. you know, that's usually an indication that it's not as rapid. Again, it could be COVID that it came into the play. And often these exponentials do not go forever. And so mm. it began to slow down. And so I can admit, Maya Culpa here, that mm. this law did not hold for long. And we still don't know where it is right now, whether it's going to have a kink in it and then mm. continue. But generally, okay, I'm accepting that there's not as much growth. The other things that caused me to, as an analyst, mm. to take data points and try to play with was the rise of Chinese bike share. Mm. If you remember Chinese bike share, it came out of the gate even before we had micromobility. This yeah. was a 2016, 17 phenomenon. And I got to meet some people who were part of that, by the way. And ask them these questions, like, what went wrong? Mm. Why did you end up with this, like, overcapitalized industry? And he said a lot of it had to do with the type of Chinese kind of rush mentality, or what's the word? There's a tendency to sort of group thinking, and Mm. there's a tendency to all rush in at once, that kind of thing. And so they did actually, the fault with the whole system was that they overinvested. They got way too much capital. Mm that exceeded the ability of not just the users to absorb but of the cities to absorb and i think that's
1: the that's the other one as well if to go back to dedu's law i think what we both probably didn't foresee was the what the pushback on the cities would be around the absorption of these vehicles. And so so
2: in the beginning, you're unimpeded and it looks mm. like green fields. and let's run to maximum, which would be addressable, which would happen to be population-based. And Mm. you just look at those numbers. And I remember running these numbers. How many scooters would a city need Mm. if you know the demand for trips is X and the number of people is Y? Mm. Okay, so then you start to look at ridiculous numbers, like hundreds of thousands of scooters. And And then the Chinese seem to be proving by their rollouts, that it's actually possible to populate a city to the hundreds of thousands of units. And you, like, you were looking at maybe, let's say, two vehicles per 100 people, mm. okay? Mm. Something like that. So imagine a city like New York, which I don't even know what they're probably. Let's say it's a 10 million city, which mm. is a mega city, 10 million people. That means you'd be looking at like 200,000 bikes.
0: Yeah, you know, a, 200, something 000 000 like that. Yeah.
2: And, and, and it, you know, even higher numbers. So China was putting that sort of number out. And we were saying, well, there's existence proof right there. Mm. Since you can do that, then you should do that. Well, as it turns out, Chinese streets and Chinese politicians and Chinese Whatever decision making, you know, where incentivized like the capital was to mm. kind of like let things run, and it th- th- wasn't calibrated with sort of the sensibilities of Western cities, and so again the the sprinkling of impedance.
1: Mm. The the one thing that I've always wondered about, because I have thought a bit about the dead Jews law, because I did help coin it, was that actually the shift away from shared what it actually showed was. There was demand there, and what we have started to see is that there, you know, as you say, there's been a giant boom in owned micromobility and we don't have the data on that we don't have the data on usage we don't have the data on vehicle kilometers that are actually traveled because nobody tracks that data because those vehicles are private they don't have to report in like you do with cars so you don't know what your vehicle kilometers traveled are for example but actually it could well have been that we ended up seeing an, another 10x of vehicle kilometers travel with the bike and other vehicles that have been uh, Put out, and so I, you know, I think that's one of the gaps. I think that we're we're still kind of working through in the industry.
2: In in some ways, the failure was on timing and also on mix, Mm. right? But micro overall Mm. has still prospered. As I said, it's very resilient. It may not be exponential; maybe you know sub logarithmic or something Mm. that is quite you know more moderate. But it certainly could even be linear. But Mm. but the models are under discussion, right? And and again. You have externalities like covid that affect the split between these two things and by the way i should point out that although these s curves that i spoke of that lead to universal adoption they have hiccups in the middle all the time and you kind of have to squint and ignore them because even the automobile in the united states which was the most rapidly adopting and then the highest saturation point that industry went through a big lull during the great depression you know, it started in 1914 mm. and through the 20s, you know, the Model T just boomed. But then it hit a wall in about 1929 when you had the Great Depression and that carried forward through World War II. So the years 1940 to 1945 were almost zero car production in the United States. The U.S. auto industry was effectively required to switch to production of war material. Mm. And, and so zero was the number of, of cars sold in the U.S. for a couple of years. And yet it bounced post-war, the famous 1950s boom, and that was unpredictable even to those who lived at that time, but it then carried on until the 80s and then saturation. But Mm. so we had a giant gap Mm. in the middle there. And so someone watching this industry in the 1920s and 30s would say, that's it, it's over, right? I mean, Mm. we're not not Mm. seeing the adoption rate go beyond, let's say, 20 to 30%. And so the Model T would be the kind of like, oh, well, once that happened it's over. One has to be careful about really determining... We're, we're, we're used to trying to figure out patterns of one or two years. We're four years into this story. Yeah. Okay. Anything to do with mobility is measured in decades. Now, another thing that I got wrong, which leads me to the next question, is like whether the adoption of micro is a four-year process, six-year process, ten year process, fifteen year process. And again, this is this curve that we're envisioning, whether it's a you know, a nice slow, steady curve or a steep, you know, vertical. And that key question would determine the way capital is allocated, mm. whether it's a VC business, a VC wants to see 10X in five years. Mm. Or whether it's going to be funded with more traditional cash flow, or it's going to get funded by bank loans, or it's going to even be funded by government somehow as public transit is. Okay. Transit is hugely popular, but it didn't get built with private capital. Automobiles are a huge business, but it didn't get funded through venture capital, mm. right? Because it was taking its time and you know it was cash flow driven so it depends very much like on the other hand phone business but interestingly even that the phone business did not get funded by vcs even Mm. though it grew quickly and that's an interesting you know historical story that as people at apple like to say no vc would have backed the iphone
1: yeah interesting
2: right so and nor nor would any vc probably have backed android either Mm. these were backed by large companies that felt that these were strategic interests and or some cool product Mm. so even windows microsoft and the whole thing didn't grow out of a vc i mean seed money yes but not the actual blowing up into a whole platform Mm, so mm. sometimes platforms are very hard to fund with venture capital and so this is the question now posed for for everyone is will this industry feed it fed off of vcs let's be clear that is exactly how we got to where we are Mm. Because in the early days, people saw Bird and this piled in. So did China. China mm. with, with e-bikes was pr- private capital. Mm. But now we're that's moderating, but it's also still there. Maybe the capital is going to flow into more of the middleware or the software layers that mm. are necessary to be built and platforms. But it's it's going back and forth, you know. Now VCs are funded Van Move. VCs have funded e-bikes, just mm, cowboy, cowboy. Guns, yeah. And all of these are, by the Red way, gun, entrance, yeah. entrance. They didn't go to giant, giant, the largest bike maker in the world out of Taiwan. No mm. VC money went there. Yeah, and they're making millions of bikes a year, mm, right? Mm. But somehow somebody convinced that if you go direct to consumer, you bypass that whole dealer network mm. and if you go DTC we can go 10x mm. and that's all a VC wants to see is mm. 10x because that they need they have they have to return money on a certain schedule. It's not like put money in and wait forever. No 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 that's not the VC model. Yeah. They have limited partners who demand returns at a certain time. Mm. So then you know these are the kind of the questions and, and if you get that timing function wrong it determines your capital. It doesn't determine the final end state mm. but it determines the rate And that determines the capital and that character of capital is very much driving the dynamic like if anything's vc based it's also going to be hungry for growth and and patient for profit yeah but if you're growing organically you're hungry for profit and patient for growth Mm.
1: so i think the, the the one mistake that i think well no i've made a number of mistakes i think one was around autonomy i thought that we would get autonomy I mean, I still think we will get autonomy in, in micro mobility. Yeah, before I was we do taking in, the
2: under on that one. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still think we'll get some level of autonomy into micro than we will before we get it into oh, I, into, for into micro, into Yeah, yeah. No, my,
2: my objection to that was on auto. Um,
1: yeah. Oh no, no, no. I, I still think we'll get it on micro mobility before we get it in automobility, kind of at wide scale. But the other one was was related to heavy micro. So I can see that there are vehicles in the sort of three hundred to five hundred kilogram category that I think. You know, especially if you can build something that's enclosed, but it has all the characteristics of being kind of lightweight. It's not the same size as a car, it's a person-sized vehicle. I could just see those being really valuable.
2: Again, I huge fan, you know, I pointed and pointed and said that's a negative space you gotta yes, target. Exactly. It's only occupied by golf cars right now. Maybe in Europe there were a couple of experiments with these so-called Twizzy or quadricycles, as they mm-hmm. call them here. And they didn't do all that well. And then no. the, this is one of the issues that people say, eh, well you see it's a it's a dud. But I felt that this was negative space and I'm still super interested in it. The only thing that I say is is moderating its growth is that it is still bound by a huge regulatory burden. It's also bound by by parking and it lives on more auto infrastructures. And that taints you in a way. Now, again, I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to dismiss it, but I would just say, that you got that burden on you. And so the way to think about automobile or macro mobility, as I say now, is that it gets entangled up with other things that are for us invisible, but very visible to them. Mm, And that mm. is infrastructures, Mm. taxation, licensing, insurance, and all these things that the industry has had to build in order to cope with the externalities that it introduced why do we have insurance because people get hurt Mm. and they get hurt because these things are dangerous Mm. and they're dangerous because they're big and heavy so then you start to be whenever you come close to that universe that's like a black hole that draws you in and then it begins to then capture you and say oh then you need to then comply with all these things because you can be a potential dangerous even if you argue vehemently that i'm low impact i'm low energy i'm Mm. low kinetic energy and therefore low damage Mm. to individuals etc and you can say and and you can make
1: all these arguments but if you if you're still stuck in the regulation or you're still stuck well the
2: problem is that you're saying i am less of the bad things yes but then you're still tainted with the bad thing so people then start to quibble with you on the numbers and mm. that means you've lost the argument already. Yeah. What you have to say, I'm in a parallel universe. I have nothing to do with that world, and so I effectively have the mobility without the costs of. Somebody once told me that, like a lot of it feels like cheating. You have to somewhat find a niche that where you can cheat at. So you're saying I'm going to provide a personal mobility with freedom and and joy but I'm going to try to do it without being tangled up by the web of the, the incumbent. And that, that's the a- that's the sense of uh, there's almost a feeling when you ride an e-bike like you feel like you're cheating people say because you're like not pedaling as hard yes you're cheating towards the idea of this like human-powered vehicle hmm. you're also cheating in terms of an idea that i'm not a motor vehicle so you're kind of in between and everybody hates you because like you're not you're not a human powered you're an the, alien on the road yeah the yeah. Purists, <laughs> yeah. the bicyclists and then the cyclists and the purists will say oh you're cheating and then the yeah. car guys they hate you too because they're like you're cheating because you're going fast. Yeah, like you shouldn't. You shouldn't go fast, and you shouldn't be allowed on bike lanes, and so on and so on. So you feel like you're in the middle. But actually, you're the one who's solving the problem because Mm. you're giving the people what they want. Yes. And you don't need to be tied Uh, up with with licensing and regulation because obviously it's a bicycle.
1: Totally. I I love that. Give the people what they want. You know, when everybody complains and says, hey, you know, e-bikes are for whatever reason, they're this or that. I mean, the reality is, and this is part that I actually didn't include earlier in the discussion, but like the sales... Uh, you know, in the Netherlands, fifty percent of all sales of bikes are Most e-bikes. In New Zealand, we will sell more e-bikes and scooters than we will new cars next year. Like and, the, and the people are showing what they want. Give the people what they want.
0: The thing.
2: It's, that's like we we say measure smiles, not miles, because if you if you realize that every person who tries it is grinning from year to year, and everybody who tries it says, "I got to get one of these," then you know you're onto something. Mm. And and all the naysayers and all the objections and all the cynicism it kind of melts away when you're saying i'm just making people happy this is why you got to kind of get a thick skin about it and say yeah well I'll carry on you know yeah. again it, it, if it gives any comfort we went through all this because like it felt like you're cheating with a smartphone too because you're like oh it's a phone all phone networks all networks were basically predicated on voice, mm. and here you're cheating with data. You're basically s- squeezing onto a voice channel or, or compression or whatever. You're squeezing data, and that's in many ways cheating because you can transmit pictures, you can transmit yeah, video. Totally. It's like, and there is an element of it's not subterfuge, but it's like finding a, a way to exploit something that. And many parts of a disruption feel like a, you know, essentially getting away with something. Mm. But that's because if you live by the rules. You end up building the same thing. You know, feel proud of the fact you figured something out. Okay. Mm. Live within the system. But that's another beauty of micro, I think. It, mm. it allows for people to be really creative and clever and unleashes all this human energy. So yeah, don't 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 worry about it too much. And by the way, <laughs> the legal stuff, here's the thing I want to point out is the legal issue is that laws are written by people Mm. and eventually the paradigm shifts
1: Oh, completely and i think i think it is one of these things yeah totally totally hey well look this has been a phenomenal catch-up and session and i'm really looking forward to all those who can make it to amsterdam and then yeah we will have more details about the forthcoming micromobility america coming very soon so yeah hey thank you for your time horace as always such a pleasure such a joy always yeah thank you dear listeners for sticking with us through this entire journey